Hello everyone and welcome to a new mini-series of the traditional best of worst of British where two-thirds of your usual hosting team, myself Lorca Mullen and my regular co-host I'm Tom Hodkinson with a license to thrill Oh yes, because Michael Bell really didn't want to get involved in this No, 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 he didn't not want to get involved, he's just currently trying to defuse a bomb on the Russian-Ukrainian border Oh, I see because of that, we thought, let's try and step out of our comfort zone and actually try to talk to some people who might have some different opinions on a particular film franchise that has very wildly different opinions on it, depending on what perspective you're coming from. So this little mini-series we're calling, as a little special subtitle, Bondwob. We're going to look at four of the most notoriously disliked films in the James Bond franchise. And we thought a great starting point to ask is a, a, a friend of myself, I think yours as well, Tom. I've known this guy for years. He's a writer, performer, improviser, circus-trained performer, and podcaster extraordinaire. We'd just like to welcome on with us now today, Aaron Twitchin. Aaron, how are you today? I'm very good. I'm much better after that as an intro. God, I'd take that any day. So yeah, thank you, Aaron, for getting on this show. One of the reasons I really wanted to get you involved in this was that you actually really helped myself with the little mini trilogy that we did within the second series of Boob, where we were looking at films with British pop stars from the late... 90s early noughties because you yourself your podcast is the excellent pod of the pops where yourself and two friends of yours sorry i can't remember the names off the top of my head if you want to give them a shout out now the scottish karen and lauren in the first series you looked at the solo and group career of the spice girls and it was a really interesting deep dive into something that doesn't usually at least in the things that i look into for music and pop culture the sort of areas that don't really get a deeper more thorough review of uh, as far as artistically as performers and just talking about stuff that really if you didn't follow the Spice Girls like I guess myself and Tom and many others wouldn't know about Uh, where did the idea come for that podcast yeah I mean when you say deep dive we managed to get 17 episodes out of the solo (laughs) careers of the Spice Girls which most people would say is ludicrous um, and I would agree how many albums do they have between them? <laughs> oh Mel C just released her seventh this week so you know they are cracking them out the park I'll tell you how it started actually it started because of Brexit like everything Brexit and that bloody sign that went round that everyone kept sending me which said this is like when Jerry Halliwell overestimated her viability as a solo artist and left the Spice Girls. And I was so outraged because I thought, no, she didn't overestimate her viability. She actually had more female British artist number ones than any other artist at that point. She had four number one singles. She released three albums with at least four good tracks between them. She was a record breaker. She was a UN ambassador. She locked herself in a car and wrote love letters to Richard X. If anything, she underestimated her ability and I thought it was time the world knew. Why do you think people are so quick to dismiss the Spice Girls? Because one of the things that we mentioned, I just listened back to that Bob, I don't know if you listened to any of the ones, I think you said you listened to the S Club one we did. I did, I, I've been listening to, I've listened to some of the Spice Girls I listened to the S Club, I've, I've got to say I'm quite impressed with your levels of research I thought, oh, I, hit, I was, I was, you know, clenched the whole way, thinking, oh god, they're going to get so much wrong, I'm going to be so <laughs> mad, but no, you were well informed. Uh, well, that was partly thanks to pot of the pops for at least for the spice girls well, uh, we, like yeah, we, we knew we had to step up the game <laughs> <laughs> but that was one of the things i brought up was when do you remember when emma stone was on graham norton and they made a big deal about how she loved spice girls growing up like that was a really weird yeah. thing to admit to <laughs> we were like 
if she was a woman of a certain age, there's a very good chance she loved the Spice Girls. Why is this now being treated as such an odd thing to want to admit to? Like, you have to confess to it, like a, a guilty pleasure of some sort. I think there's two things with it. One, like, isn't there? Like, one is they were women. Like, we always deride the work of women and we make it lesser. And the second is that it was for kids. Like, they were selling records to children. Like, it was very like commercialized like everything about them was like branded and commercial like their, their faces were on like lollipops and cameras and deodorant so people i think forget like the music was good and the message was good and that they were great role models because they sold everything that they could and that was very deliberate well that's so ironic actually it makes it even more fitting that we're talking about bond a man that is all about branding and product placement like right in them in the films themselves but it's seen as like a a higher end because it's omega watches and aston yeah. martins and all that sort of stuff but you know like spice girls had high end they had like a, a motorbike or something at one point like they got oh, wow. sued by this motorbike company because jerry left and they'd designed five motorbikes and they were like what we're we gonna do now with the fifth one like, who was buying those motorbikes? Just don't. <laughs> I certainly wasn't. I was like 16, 14 or something. Someone's holding out the Emma Bonton one on me. I must have it. <laughs> right? Also, just to get back to what you were saying, so often they dismiss them. One of the things I really liked that you did in Pot of the Pops was that you talk about the musical journey that each of the performers go down. Like you say, that I think you said that Mel C obviously is ultimately like a musical theatre sort of fan more than anything, whereas... I remember you saying Emma Bunton took quite a sort of was it a swinging 60s sound and the one that you said was the best of all the solo Spice Girls albums. Yeah. Like her middle, her second album, Free Me, and then her third album. And then even though she released an album last year, Would You Believe? And that, yeah, she took a real 60s, like Bond girl theme, actually. It's funny that you've got me on a Bond one because now that I think about it, the Spice Girls had a lot of crossover with Bond. Yeah, there's a lot of Bond influence in Spice World, isn't there? It's all over the place with Roger Moore as well. Yeah, it's that whole British thing, isn't it? Like, Bond is very British and the Spice Girls very quickly became We're So British. Like, they were jumping off the tail ends of Britpop. Like, Jerry's wearing the Union flag on a bloody dress and they're, you know, throwing all these British references in their movies. So, yeah, I guess it makes sense. But yeah, Emma Bunton went down this real 60s route and she did, like, Free Me, which is a very bond sounding song i know you wanted to talk about soundtracks and bond soundtracks yes. melanie c sporty spice has come out this week and said she thinks the spice girls would be perfect to record the next bond song Ooh. it would be intriguing this has there ever been a band that have done uh, well there was wings i guess aha uh-huh. yeah aha uh-huh, um... yes aha uh-huh, and uh dran duran yeah, that was a, that was a little one-two punch they did in the mid '80s. I was just going to ask, like, in, so obviously you're a big fan of pop music, but as yes. like pop culture in general, are you also a regular cinema goer, or do you have a a favorite genre of film, or you just uh, do you just like see whatever whatever takes your fancy, or are you just not that? Are you like Mike and you don't really care much for films in general? I think somewhere between the two. Like now, I literally never watch a movie because they're just so long like I just cannot invest that much time like movies these days are so bloody long yeah I will watch five episodes of Nashville back to back and not think anything of it so (laughs) I'm much more invested in tv series and I think it's about character development like I like to really invest in a character and then live with them for like weeks but when I was growing up I grew up in Devon like I'm a country boy and there wasn't a lot to do. So all we really had was the cinema. So I did watch a lot of films as a kid, 
but not so much now. So is it like there's like a five or six year period in like, I'm going to assume sort of the late 90s, early to mid noughties yeah. that you sort of have a bit of knowledge about, but outside of that bubble, it's not really... Yeah, like I think I'm aware of movies, like, but yeah, I don't... The only thing I ever make a trip to see at the cinema now is Jurassic Park. Like, I'm just like... Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I've seen them all, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm really excited for that, that final... Uh, sequel in this new trilogy it's just because it has fucking everyone <laughs> it's yeah, it's yeah. like the Avengers version of Jurassic Park where there's a going right lob them all in and see what happens I'm it's really a lot of pressure that. though isn't it like the middle one of, a, of the of the sets are, is always like the worser one like Lost World is worse and I think the last one was a bit I will it was always, good I will always defend the Lost World I'm sorry I think it's good, but it always gets derided. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Jurassic Park 3, to be honest with you, but I haven't watched it in a long, long time. So I think it's one of those ones that if you really it's better it, than It's better than people gave it credit at the time, I yeah. think. Well, the thing that got me excited about Jurassic Park 3 was that one was the one that used pterodactyls for the first time, and it always seemed like the logical sort of thing that would make a great action set piece it would be a pterodactyl fight did you go and see i guess for you it would have been with the only bond that you really knew then like pierce brosnan or did you see have you seen any of the craig bonds or any of the brosnan bonds well, i guess actually so like i said i was a kid growing up in Denver, and just in case it's not become obvious from my high-pitched voice and interest in pop music obviously i am a vegetarian and <laughs> and a gay man um so that must be the diversity you're looking for in this podcast i bring the <laughs> rainbow card it's a good I, mean, he, he, I don't want to say it but he did say the phrase box ticker beforehand <laughs> it, it would be the first box i'd take but um to, to give it a bond innuendo but when I was growing up, my dad and I, I remember when we were really young, I think ITV2 were replaying all the Bonds yeah. like every weekend yeah. and we watched one together every weekend. I think my dad had this idea that you could decamp someone from watching enough misogynistic filmography. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, uh, the film we're doing now is is has pr- plenty of camp within it anyway. So I think it might have been a bit misguided on your dad's front. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, right? So I definitely had watched a lot of the Bond films. I want to say I think I'd watched most of them. So so for me, it was mainly Sean Connery and Pierce. I keep wanting to say Pierce Morgan, but clearly he was not. A... <laughs> that, that would end my affiliation with Bond films. Can you imagine? He fits the build, you know what I mean? He's a misogynist, yeah. he's arrogant, he's a <laughs> straight white male dominating in a middle to upper class region you can see him hitting a woman yeah absolutely i get where you're coming from with that though like when i was growing up i wouldn't sit down and like set aside a a, a date but like i just have vague memories like on bank holidays and and school holidays of just flicking the channels and their bond appears and just like random scenes from random bond films i'll recognize without knowing how much of the film itself i sat down and watched at the time you know yeah they're always on aren't they yeah they do bleed together they seem to be mostly roger moore films from my memory those are the ones that had the more vivid ones but goldfinger probably stuck as well a lot because it's got so many iconic moments you know um but yeah like i'm like you it just sort of bled together yeah you, it's hard to tell which one you've watched, I mean. Well, I always used to joke that they've given us one film for the price of 20. <laughs> uh, we've got a few 
questions we're going to try and work out ourselves and we've, yes. we've sent them over and if there are any that you think you've got an opinion on or, or don't have an opinion on are there any ones like we've got one of the things we're thinking like who are the best looking bonds who are the best dress bonds who'd win a battle royal fight between all the bonds I feel like I have very little opinion on these because I have such little knowledge of Bond. Yeah. Which is yeah. mad because I'm pretty sure I've watched them. Like, I think I must have watched most of them when I was a kid. But honestly, and this is going to sound so bloody stupid, but I can't tell the difference between any of them but Daniel Craig. And maybe that's just because he's still in memory and he's the only blonde one. And even then, he's not, like, super... Bo- they always... They just all seem the same. Like, you know when you're like, oh, which one's better dressed? Like, they all wear the same tuxedo. Like, I, it's, <laughs> it's so... It's like you're asking me to tell the difference between possums. I can't... I don't have that skill set in my eyesight and vocabulary to differentiate between these unremarkable white men. I just I do think, can't do it. I do think there are some big fashion mistakes in this film. There's one look in particular that I think is the worst Bond has ever looked in any film. Uh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, I guess. I guess. And maybe I'm just not a fashion gay and I just didn't even see that. Maybe <laughs> I was so blinded by the other problematic issues in this film. I was like, fashion? Like, that's fine. We can let some of this slide. <laughs> to, be, to be honest, Every time the, the fashion of Bond comes up, if you're not thinking of a tuxedo, you're not thinking of James Bond, <laughs> apart from Daniel Craig in his speedos. Yeah, so I did take a moment when you were like, oh, which one do you think is better? I, ta- I did take a moment to be like, are any of the Bonds actually that good looking? Um, and I get, it's hard because um, sort of aesthetics have changed a lot, especially in the last 20 years towards expectation for male bodies. Because before like the noughties, like no one expected you to really have any muscles or be defined or anything. Whereas now to be a movie star, you have to like be carved out of rock. Um, and so Daniel Craig's the first one that's been a body girl. Uh, uh, as The Rock is, for example. Right? Well, he's not even carved out of rock, is he? God, he looks like he's swallowed a hundred watermelons. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane, isn't it? Uh, what? <laughs> It's interesting you say that because I was thinking about this and I think it might have been Casino Royale that changed that expectation for male bodies in in movies. When he comes out of the pool, I mean, they've deliberately framed him like they did Ursula Andress Mm -hmm. in the first Bond film. We're meant to look at how incredible his body is and he's got a muscularity that Pierce Brosnan never had to have and that was only a few years ago. And then two or three years after this, you get in all the Marvel films and there's basically a requirement in every one of those films that the male lead strips off and, and looks absolutely like the front of a men's health and fitness magazine. And I honestly think it was it might have been Casino Royale that was the first obviously you had your Arnold Schwarzeneggers and everything before them but those were almost like cartoony they're unattainable body images whereas the Daniel Craig is not attainable like I've looked back and from a fitness point of view like I, I do have like a fitness qualification and I'm a, a circus like so I kind of know a bit about that it's that's not an unattainable body goal like that is what now we would be calling a dad bob disgustingly um because we have completely aesthetically destroyed ourselves as a civilization thanks to Instagram. <laughs> so if that's a dad, but I'm great grandfather. What the fuck? <laughs> right? Aren't we all just struggling? Do you feel a pressure to achieve that, or is that just something that comes as a result of your love of fitness and, and, and exercise in general? I am absolutely the worst. Like, and lockdown has <laughs> not made anyone any better. You have a lot more time in front of the mirror and a lot more time with cake. I spent yeah. three months back at home with my parents in Devon, like, using the time. And they do not eat, like, clean living. I ate mm. potatoes every day for the first time in about 15 years. And my God, did my body show it. 
so no, yeah, it's a daily battle. I think it is for a lot of people, isn't it now? Well, it was someone said you come out of lockdown either a chunk, a drunk, or a hunk. One of those three. Oh, that's nice. Can I be all three? <laughs> I think I'm swerving, like definitely swerving. Uh, so last last couple of questions then before we get into the film. Uh, you said the Spice Girls. Are there any like? Do you have a favorite Bond theme song? Uh, or does, is that again? Is that not like as a pop music fan? Is that something you would listen to, or does it not? Again, it's more like swelling orchestral music. I don't know if that would appeal to you or not. I do have a controversial musical opinion for Bond singles. Here we go. And that is, I think my favorite one is Madonna's "Die Another Day." Wow. Okay. <laughs> I know it's so unpopular, <laughs> and it's not even like unpopular just amongst Bond fans or regular music listeners. I was at um, a Madonna drag concert once, and she was like, the Madonna impersonator was like, oh, any requests for a Madonna song? And I said, die another day, and I got booed. Like, it was... <laughs> <laughs> when even Madonna fans hate it. Right, yeah, even they hate it. It's insane. I re-listened to them all this morning, and I think that maybe the mistake with Die Another Day, if there is one to me, is it seems to throw too many ideas at it. It's trying to be so different, and it's coming at the, sort of the tail end of her disco, techno, William Orbit period into the music. Uh, I think music was the previous like big hit. She yeah, had no, she was then. going into her American Life album, so she is being derided because this is where she starts rapping. Um, if you remember, um, I get my chocolate feeling super hotto. <laughs> It goes right through my body and I'm feeling satisfied or whatever the... I've got a driver and a chauffeur and a butcher and a chef. (laughs) Is Madonna potentially a future subject for Pod of the Pops or are you going to stick to homegrown British? Let's just see. I mean, I prefer to look at maligned women of pop and I feel like she's not been that maligned. Because you're now doing the Sugar Babes, and I remember saying to you, that was basically the only girl group. And they were, they were the ones I was defending when we were ranking all the boy and girl groups together. Yeah, I did hear that, and I do have umbrage with some of your um, <laughs> choices. Oh, but, no. here we go. But yeah. But uh, I was saying to you that they were like the only band that like guys like me were allowed to say, they're good, they're, they're good. They they Because they, 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 they were doing mashup singles and had more of an R&B and hip-hop flavour yeah. to them. I was saying All Saints kind of had that as well. All Saints were um, cool, yeah. I don't know if... My, uh, were you an All Saints fan or...? I think I loved any... I mean, if it's not already obvious from my own, I'm yeah. not a fan of the male voice. So, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah any female pop star was, was getting my £3.50 or whatever it was to buy a single in the late 90s, early noughties. Okay, and last of all, because you messaged me saying you were very excited to tell us this, we were saying if there are any actors out there that you would like, thought could play Bond in the future, it oh, most yeah. likely will be Daniel Craig's last one, and you said you had one that you were really excited to to pitch, I suppose, to us. Well, I've got two, because you want, so the categories were, like, would there be a, a queer artist, um, a female, uh, and a person that's not white? Um, yeah. So, obviously for the queer artist, I put forward myself. Like, that just seems the natural... I've done improv. That feels like most of what Sean Connery was doing through this movie. (laughs) Do you want me to read the script? (laughs) I do not fully believe there was a script to this movie and (laughs) we'll come into it. So I feel like I can improvise my way through some haphazard scenes. This one was mostly sketch work, so that'd be good. And there was so much actual circus in this film that was terrible that I kind of want to do the actual circus like he does his own stunts i think that would be good 
Well, you've already got, like I say, uh, I don't know at this stage, but in the past you've had the body for it. I've de- I've got, I can get it back, yeah, I can get it back. <laughs> Would you like to see a Bond, like, that was, like, in Skyfall they make brief allusions to it? They don't. They make one passing comment. I refuse to accept that as gay men, or as queer people at all, that we should accept those morsels and be grateful. Yeah. Do not throw me a crumb and think you've fed me a loaf of bread. Yeah, it was like that with Beauty and the Beast. It was like that with the last Star Wars movie. It's like one millisecond that they can cut out of whichever markets they need it to be not involved in, you know? Exactly. Could you see it working as... Because Bond is so sexual anyway. It kind of would make sense for a 21st Bond to see himself almost as like a a pansexual who will literally shag anything because he just seems to like that, you know? He likes shagging in general. Yeah, that would be more interesting, I think, just to see it being less like specific like box oh he only likes women or it'd be more interesting yeah if it was more pansexual or bisexual or just some variation on that i'm not really that bothered about seeing a gay bond like i think there are more interesting stories to tell like we've had what's this 27 movies like i i don't care do what you want with the franchise now because it's not it's not serious like just tell other stories and so you've had the queer uh, lgbtq uh what would be what was the what were the other ones you you've thought oh, i've of? got a really good idea for a female okay sonia jackson from eastenders okay. <laughs> <laughs> distract them all with a the trumpet practice exactly because we know she has the range she's been a trumpeteer a teen mom and a lesbian i mean <laughs> if she can handle well art she can handle any villain <laughs> And she's fundamentally oh. British. Like, she's proper East End. And we know she can do the body because she's done fitness videos. So we could see her coming out of the water. Like, she could be her own Bond girl. And I just love the idea that, you know, there's that Morgana Robinson parody of her. And I just love to have yeah. one where it's like, I'm just doing this now. Being the first female Bond. Just... <laughs> I'll be very curious to see where it goes with the new Bond, because obviously they employed Phoebe Waller-Bridge to do a punch-up of the script because of Killing Eve and all that. Well, because is... she now appears to be the only female British writer in existence yeah. to Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Which is exactly what they... Like, great for her. Like, no no shade to um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It's great to see someone pushing through. But like, I just think it's hilarious now. They're like, oh, she'll write everything where we need a female perspective. It's like when yeah. Amy Schumer broke through and they were like, oh, my God, people want to see a movie with a non thin white woman amy schumer let's just book her for everything the same with tiffany hadish when they were like oh my god black women can be funny get this bitch on everything it's insane sorry we need someone slightly heavy set uh, is rebel wilson on the phone <laughs> right right it's just she's mad. not well there are no other heavy set women in hollywood well, so <laughs> rebel wilson and amy schumer i'm pretty sure i picked we up put each them other's all, we put the rest in a pit let's get seth rogan <laughs> no, James Corden would be. Oh, we need someone. James Corden, he'll do it. All right. Okay. Well, that has been a really fun chat, and I think we're now ready to do a bit of a natter about the film that we're here to talk about, which is the last of the Eon Bond films that Sean Connery starred in, and it's 1971's Diamonds Are Forever. Waiting for him. Asking for him. Now he's here. 
are you? My name is Bond. James Bond. He's back in a new Bond spectacular. Welcome to hell, Blofeld. He's back. Good evening. And we're back to what great movies are all about. Hey, what the hell is this? Hey, listen, you can't do this to me. I've got friends in this town. Outrageous, fun-making thrills. I didn't know there was a pool down there. <laughs> He's back. The character who runs rings around his enemies in Diamonds Are Forever. 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 And they're back. Some rare facets of female bondage. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. I don't dress for the hired help. Starring Jill St. John, Charles Gray, and he's back as Blofeld, 007 style. Good evening, 007. From the Diamond Territory of South Africa. Curious. How oh, everyone who touches those diamonds seems to die. The canals of Amsterdam. To the gaming halls of Las Vegas. Hi, I'm Plenty. But of course you are. Plenty O'Toole. Named after your father, perhaps. To the rocket sites of Nevada. Sean Connery. Alias James Bond 007 is back in action. summary i've given myself a challenge to try and summarize this the whole film from start to finish 007 in 107 1 minute 47 seconds and to, to make it more sort of atmospheric i've got a laser that's going to take 107 <laughs> seconds to reach the announce oh so uh, i'd get a hurry on if i were you do you have a stopwatch tom because then you can sort of mark mark it again you, you you act like i'm prepared for anything no of course <laughs> i don't i have do you want i can time it if you want oh brilliant I've got a phone. Oh my god, do you not have an iPhone or other brands are available? <laughs> I I live in the past. My cousin's nine-year-old daughter uh, was at a party uh, a while back and she asked for her dad's phone to play on because her, she didn't have hers. And I just heard her saying, he doesn't have TikTok. Mom, dad doesn't have TikTok. Does he live under a rock? 
Yeah. <laughs> Gotta hate youth. As an over 30 year old man, I will not, do not, and shall not ever have TikTok. It's yeah. it's the Bebo of its day. It will come, it will go. <laughs> Vine passed and so will this. It's not oh. like, oh, after COVID, it's just going to be cockroaches and TikTok. TikTok will be gone. <laughs> okay. Aaron, if you're ready to give me a countdown. Yes. And if I fail, then let me know and I'll just have to take it on the chin. Okay. Three, two, one, blast off. 007 is on the warpath. He tracks down Blofeld to gain revenge for the killing of his wife on their wedding day in the previous film. Finding Blofeld in the lair where he has surgery to change his appearance and that of a number of doubles, he kills Blofeld and returns to Earth for MI5. His new mission is to uncover who is behind a diamond smuggling operation. He visits Amsterdam and assumes the identity of smuggler Peter Franks, meeting co- point of contact Tiffany Case. Before the real Franks can reach Case, Bond kills him and swaps out his own wallet, making Case believe he has just killed James Bond. They use Franks' corpse to smuggle the diamonds from Amsterdam to Las Vegas and follow the trail to a funeral home where Bond trades forged diamonds to see who's really in charge. Two henchmen have been following Bond every step of the way and place him in a coffin at the funeral home to be burned and it's only when the diamond merchants realise that the diamonds are fake that they let Bond out to find the location of the real diamonds Bond picks up the real diamonds from CIA contact Felix Leiter and holds up at the White House Hotel owned by the mysterious Willard White taking up Plenty O'Toole to his hotel room Bond encounters Tiffany and some gangsters who dispose of Plenty before leaving Bond with Case Case is persuaded via Bond's penis to help them retrieve the real diamonds Case flees with the diamonds but after Bond finds her and shows her that Plenty was killed by the people Case was involved with she realises she's in over her head Case and Bond follow the lead to a remote facility where diamonds are being kept whilst work is done on the large satellite. Bond evades capture via Moon Buggy and then the police on the Las Vegas Strip. He climbs to a penthouse of white, only to be met by Blofeld and his last remaining double. He's drugged and driven away by the henchmen to a building site. He survives thanks to being left in a pipeline escaping the next morning. He uses the same voice box as Blofeld to pose as white in order to find the real white's location. After nearly drowning two women, he finds the real white and they deduce that Blofeld plans to use the diamonds in order to turn the satellites into a laser to destroy all nuclear weapons apart from his own, sparking a huge bidding war. Bond travels to Blofeld's base on an oil rig. The kidnapped case screws up Bond's attempts to switch the control states because she's a woman. The CIA attack the base and Blofeld attempts to get away on a mini sub but Bond foils him, crashing the sub into the control room and blowing up the rig. Case falls off the rig trying to fire a gun and Bond follows her. Bond and Case celebrate by taking a cruise. Winton Kidd, the henchman, disguised as crew stuff, attempt the classic exploding cake trick. But Bond dispatches them both thanks to his knowledge of wine and ability to smell. The end. Okay, that was very impressive. But, but I'm afraid, much like the movie's scriptwriters, you lost control of the plots and came in at 2 minutes 12, which is over by, what, 25 seconds? Ooh, good attempt, though. Gives me a target for next time. Yeah, it was very impressive. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that's the first thing. This film is too long, like a lot of bomb films end up being, because they've got so many things they end up having to fit in. What what did they have to fit in? I'm sorry. There was so much of that film that could be cut. Like I, this this was the thing that got me. There was there's maybe five or six notes I have to myself that say two hours. Oh god. Like and this movie took me four hours to watch because I kept pausing to write two hours. Dear God. And then I watched it again today. So I feel like I've given six hours of my life to this movie and it really didn't need that much. Oh, I'm sorry, Aaron. <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I had a good time. Yeah. Connery had left after the fifth film, You Only Live Twice, feeling like he'd been, like he'd had to do five films in six years, and he really felt like he was being used by the producers. And that's where they brought George Lazenby in to do Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but that was a bit of a flop. And so then they, the, 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 they didn't want to go back to Bond. They cast another guy as James Bond, an American actor. But, and they also looked at Adam West, and I think that's yeah. a sign of where this film was going. Yeah, they, they actually they tried to cast not just Adam West, but also Burt Reynolds. Yeah. And they both refused, oh they both refused the job because they said, James Bond should be English, what are you doing? <laughs> that I find hard to believe. Like, someone else. I do not believe any of those men turned this down. Oh, uh, the, the other, actually, 
before they went back to Sean Connery, they also spoke to Michael Gambon. Oh, okay. To be Bond, but he said he couldn't do it because his body was tired and old and it looked like he had man tits. Well, that's the thing about this film. I'm not saying Sean Connery looks bad, but in relative terms, he's putting on a bit of middle age spread. You know, he's definitely not as lean as he was in his 30s prime in the early Bond films. How old is he in this film? He's 40, I think, or 41. Okay, I think that is impressive for 41. I'll be happy to look like that for you. He is wearing a wig, it should be said at this point. So I read that in... I only read that today. I had no idea. But then maybe I was so distracted by the lack of female representation in this movie (laughs) that I could not give a shit how Bond looked. I'm sorry, is Plenty O'Toole not enough for you? I... I want to give that woman an Academy Award for the ability that she had to be able to say, my name is Plenty O'Toole, without bursting out crying. Uh, one of the overriding things I have about Bond is it seems like every Bond is a reaction to the last Bond. Things that work, they do more of. Things that didn't work, they do less of. And so whilst Honor Majesty's Secret Service is now seen as maybe the best Bond film of all, not necessarily, like, weirdly, the best Bond film has what's generally seen as the worst Bond. And so because of that, they have to make it, like, George Lazenby didn't really impose his personality on it, so they had to go back to the well of Sean Connery. And also, Honor Majesty's Secret Service really tries to do, like, a serious action, epic scale, and they really seem to tone down with this one, and they really, really embrace the camp. Because I think this is also around the time that Batman was big, that the Adam West Batman, and it seems like it's very much Bond is starting to take less take itself a lot less seriously. Someone said, I think it's been said that this is Sean Connery in a Roger Moore Bond film. There's things like an elephant winning at the slot machine and all sorts of... Oh, my God, I lost my mind there. (laughs) Yeah, it did feel to me... Like, I think it was... What I will say about this film, it was fun. Like, it definitely was fun. But I don't need two hours of fun. (laughs) That sounds bad. Just like uh, James Bond, I am done with fun after one go. So... I d- it could have because it just felt like a series of sketches like sewn together. Like the plot did not have a very strong overarching theme. Like I have notes through this all the time. Like what do the diamonds have to do with this? Where are the diamonds? Why are we here? I think with a lot of them, they just have to kind of take the title and then just work with it because they're all ba- based on the novels. But they they were filming them out of order and they were sort of going into their own little world. And so I think like with some of them, like Moonraker, like. Bond doesn't go into space in that, but they just took the title and put him in space, you know? Um, And I think with this one, it was like, are diamonds good at fashioning satellites that will destroy all of the world's nuclear weapons? I thought diamonds are just kind of pretty shiny things that have no actual intrinsic value. So my understanding of what I thought this film was about, and I didn't see it, and then I rewatched it today and still didn't, and I was like, did I see a version with a scene added in, like a director's cut? Um, I thought it was about the fact that diamonds refract light ah. and, and it was something to do with that because of the um, purity of the crystal the, in that sort of science fiction yeah, way yeah. in the same way that Jurassic Park is like oh if you take a fossilised mosquito the blood has the DNA in that sort of pseudoscience sense it's like someone says to a scientist so fractured light that means laser right no <laughs> that's not what it means at all I think you'll find it means laser <laughs> <laughs> So I did a bit of research around this as well, and it very much feels like this film has gone, okay, what things have been relevant in the last two, three years that we can, like, chuck in and parody? So that's why you've got, like, the moon landings, and you've got, like, circus, and you've got, like, nuclear warfare, and it, it was very... 
ugh, and just, okay, we're going to talk about these things even though we haven't actually read anything about them or researched them in any way or put any actual thought into its representation. What sort of tone would you want in a Bond film? Would you want it to be like the serious sort of Daniel Craig, Timothy Dalton era Bond and early Connery? Or do you prefer this slightly sillier, campier tone where it's obviously not taking itself that seriously? What do you think? Like, what do you both think is the right tone for Bond? What your preferred tone for a Bond film? I think film? there's space for both, really. I think there's... You've got to walk a fine line between the action level of entertainment and sort of more comedic style of things, more sort of romantic style of things, you've got to find that perfect balance, which is nigh on impossible half the time. But I I don't think it should be one or the other. It should be just sort of a perfect blend. I think it's difficult. Like, one thing I do have to be... I should have said this earlier. I've never seen a Daniel Craig, (laughs) James Bond film. So I have no idea what the comparison is. Probably should have done that. But I think, I actually think it's fine for them to be a romp because there's so many of them. It's, and and I think then that lessens the expectation we have. Like no one is turning around and being like, oh my God, the carry-on films. Why didn't they do better representation (laughs) for women? Like it's, it's because you know that it's stupid. Um, but because the later ones are so, they take themselves really seriously, it makes you look back at the others. It's, it, it, I mean, just be one thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is why no one picked up the Jerry Halliwell country music album, because it was like, no, Jerry, this is not what anyone expects, wants or thinks you should do. So, yeah, it just, I guess it's, it's weird like that. I think it's fine for it to be a fun romp. I think, you know... But take things seriously. Maybe don't talk about diamond smuggling and nuclear warfare when there is a is the, the Cold War was happening at this time, was it? I don't know. My history is not super yeah, great. I think this might have been sort of the period of like Nixon kind of brought in a detente where everything sort of calmed down a little bit, or he was supposed to calm down. But also, to be fair, the Vietnam War is still going on at this point, so there's plenty of conflict going on. That was also what was interesting when I looked at this, like. Obviously, so many people say see that James Bond is like a like a very conservative sort of right wing version of a hero, and you can see a lot of that. And I thought that was very interesting because what is Bond ultimately trying to protect at the at the early stages before they realise it's going to destroy the world is just the rich diamond industry. You've got to help us. People are taking away some of our money. This infuriated me beyond belief, and especially when I watched it back today, because I realised like what they're building up to is this laser warfare thing, which is a perfect Bond story because it's not real. But actually, the only reason that the British embassy interferes in South African drug problems, like why aren't the South African government doing anything? And then I had to look back to see whether we owned, quote unquote, South Africa at that time. Because that's what also annoys me about Bonds is why is the Her Majesty's Secret Service constantly going around and interfering in international business without telling anyone and without alerting anyone? I just think it's so typical of what led to Brexit with the British people being like, oh my God, we totally run the whole world because we dominated and owned half of it. And we call it a commonwealth when really what we mean is places that we invaded and stole everything from. That's the thing, isn't it? Like, James Bond being the jet-setting guy that can land wherever he wants is kind of the same attitude that we have with our ships in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. You know, he's continuing that. So are we, uh, we all excited for the Commonwealth Games in a couple of years, lads? So we're all good? <laughs> oh, God, I don't think we're going to be safe there. That really annoyed me in that opening... So it's not the opening scene, but that very first scene where they're explaining... Like, after the credits, they're explaining the plot for this movie about the diamonds, and they show... 
And they're going, oh, it's um, the diamond trade in South Africa is 80% and it's really highly protected. Like the diamonds can't get out. How are they smuggling? And then they're showing us like the only representation of black men in the movie as well, who are working menial labor and stealing diamonds. And I was thinking, why is no one talking about, are these people getting a living wage? Like, do you think these people are stealing diamonds just for the sheer hell of it? They're not making any money. Why is no one looking out for these poor people? Why isn't Her Majesty's Secret Service going in and giving these, you know, a living wage and health benefits so they're not having to smuggle diamonds in their goddamn teeth just so they can see a dentist? Oh no, they've they've had some fucking Rand, Jesus Christ, oh, someone stop them. Right? It, it, it was just madness to me. It's probably it's probably a, a blessing in disguise, though, that Bond doesn't just go to South Africa and grab a few of the workers and start taking out their teeth to see what's going on. You know, maybe we should be thankful for small mercies there. Well, I don't think sounds. we should be. I think race in this film is worse than feminism, actually. Because I sort of was expecting this film to be really bad because I'd watched, um, which is the one where it's got all the voodoo in, Live and let die. Yeah, I saw that the other week with my dad and I nearly lost my mind. I was drinking wine and I was live tweeting and it was a mess because <laughs> that was so bad. I think at one point they used the word honky as well and I was just like, oh God, like this is just so out of touch. So I didn't think this film was as bad as that. But what really got me, my butt was clenched from the opening scene when it opens up on that like Japanese low table and the screen. And I was like, oh God, what is going to come next? And what came was a Japanese character that like exclaimed and screamed in Japanese. Like they made them accent their screams. And that continued throughout the whole movie. Like at the end when the lasers are going off, they're in like Mexico or Korea or somewhere. And some guy screams in the accent that they think that character should have while his ass is on fire and he's running. Like his pants are on fire and he's screaming in an accent like, oh, oi, oi, oi. It was the most offensive thing. Well, there's a there's a lot of offensive things in this. Oh, you were saying that like, one of the things you really want to talk about is like the the feminist representation, and this is this is again following on from Honor Majesty's Secret Service, where you've got maybe the greatest Bond Bond girl, as they're called, of all time in Diana Rigg, because she's the woman that Bond actually does fall in love with, and in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, they genuinely both save each other at various points in the film, like uh, Diana Rigg's character. I think it helps that she was already famous through the Avengers and everything. Uh, so she was seen as an action movie hero herself. She does like a big car getaway scene. Obviously, there are moments where she does have to get slapped in order to know her place. So it's obviously only so far it goes in its like uh, representation. But it's like it seems like again they're reacting against the unpopularity of that. So with this one, I mean, first of all, the casting seems to be like something from a Russ Myers film. I was going to say, oh, are we are we already talking about Bambi and Thumper, or are we just ignoring that? No, no, I'm I'm, I'm talking about Plenty O'Toole and. Uh, 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 Tiffany Case. They're definitely that like when previous Bond g- girls of the sixties were were put in very often were like in elegant night dresses and everything. But this, in this one, literally at the end, Tiffany Case is in a bikini, and then they say, "Oh, get out of that into something more comfortable, like getting something more functional." And it's like a bikini with like a slight like some extra stuff on the shoulders, <laughs> and, and and he's putting like a search like uh, cassette tapes in her pants and things like that it's like it's it's genuinely like this is worse than than the 60s bond films were in my opinion because i've just been watching them all and like this is like even a step down from what women are usually presented because like tiffany case is utterly incompetent throughout the whole film 
like I said, she like falls off the cliff. She falls off the rig trying to fire a gun. Bond gives her the cassette, but it's the wrong cassette, and she does it wrong like three times. That's she did not do it wrong. He gave her her cassette. So this is at the end, right, where he switched the cassette, and she hasn't seen because she was out of the room, not because she's stupid. And then he puts it in her pants and goes, says some line that's like, you've got to do something. So she's like, oh, cool. I need to switch the tape, which is exactly what she could think. Why was he not more specific? Dumbass. He is incompetent, (laughs) actually, is what I have learned from these movies. He's very lucky to have survived all the things that he survived. Luck got him where he is. And so she does, she bravely, well, actually, she stupidly just runs over and does it in front of everyone, like, because she's a woman, no one can see her. But also that, I mean, are we going to... That tape thing was ridiculous. Like, A, why was it on a tape anyway? Like, that was stupid. But also, why is Blofeld so dumb as to not check the tape every time something happens? Like, if you can see people switching around a goddamn tape, then you check it. Like, do these people want to blow up the world or do they just want to have a nice day? Yeah. Well, they can do both, you know. <laughs> one one can lead to the other. But Blofeld's really annoying in this film, actually. It's like, in the previous two films, in the first one, and you live in a... Live, uh, you only live twice, he's kind of a megalomaniac. He's, it's also sort of the classic Doctor Evil look is ripped from that. Yeah, the Donald Pleasant's look. Yeah, he's very taciturn and, and doesn't say much. And then he goes to Telly Savalas, who is a lot more malevolent and, and, and imposing and actually quite physically, like, he fights Bond himself. He leads the charge against Bond. And this Blofeld, to me, he sounds almost like one of those really annoying smarmy teachers you had at school. who's always trying to tell you how stupid you are. Like, I don't get, like, a great world dominator in this guy. I just get a guy who's a bit of an arsehole. Although the only Bond villain that's ever dared to go drag... Yes, that was, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about that, because there is quite a few, obviously the two henchmen are, at the very least, coded, I mean, they literally hold hands at one point, I think there's some interesting coding with the Bambi and Thumper characters as well, and Blofeld literally is in drag at one point as well, did you, I mean, did you pick up on these things yourself, Aaron, or am I reading too much into it, I'm curious. No, yeah, 100% Blofeld is gay, it's in the name, Blofeld, (laughs) it's 100%. He struck me as homo. He has a house full of cats. And also, like, he paid no attention to Tiffany Case. Like, he, she was just there on his ship, and he barely even looked at her, even though she's running around doing the most in her bikini, trying to get his attention. Um, yeah, he was 100% queer-coded. But this is... So this is a huge... Pro- I don't know how much you guys have talked about queer-coding on the podcast, but it's a very common method of identifying a villain in a film by giving them cliched and stereotypical archetypes of gay men. So if you take, like, Disney, for an example, most of the lead villains are queer-coded. So, like, Jafar is very camp and well-dressed. Like, Ursula in The Little Mermaid was literally based on Drag Queen Divine. Scar, again, is, like, camp, he's unmarried. Like, it goes on, like, Ratcliffe, Hades, like, literally almost all of them are queer-coded. And it has this sort of, like, toxic after-effect of the only queer representation you see in movies and they are always the villains. And it's kind of like a shortcut for writers to let you know which one the villain is and which one you should be rooting against. But then that portrays back into society. And then you're like, oh, well, when you see a queer person, they're a villain. That's why you have such hatred of queer people and internally within the community. That's why you have such um, hatred for like camp and why you have things like Mask for Max and like feminism is really 
looked down upon. Well, I think that all is rooted in Ian Fleming. Like, apparently in the books, I've never read any books, but they will go on to occasional diversions where he really doesn't... He just kind of rants against uh, homosexuality. Like, in, in Goldfinger, uh, Pussy Galore is literally a lesbian at the start of the book, and, and the power of Bond's penis, he changes her by the end of it. Well... <laughs> I think it's particularly bad for this film because it seems to be this one seems to be the only film that has a uh, really strong queer coding in because Mr. Kid and Mr. Wynn like it, that's 100% in there because yeah you, like you say you've got them holding hands and then there's that line when they get on the plane and he says um, oh she's quite good looking for a woman and then gets like a really evil glare the timing of this is really poor so stonewall happens in 1969 which is sort of seen as the biggest event in um modern queer rights and then the first pride events would have taken place in new york chicago and los angeles in 1970 and then you'd get the first london pride march would follow like six months after this movie in 1972 so queer rights is very prominent at this time as is the era so the equal rights amendment in america looking at addressing um women's rights as being human rights so this film comes out while those two things are massive globally and manages to blindly ignore them or maybe they thought oh look we'll throw in these two queer villains and you'll be happy well, it's it's interesting though with the portrayal of those two henchmen because I, I can't remember which one's which, which one's Wint and which one's Kid. Mister Kid is the one with the amazing chin. Like he has this jawline that is insane. Like you could literally you could hang furniture off that. It's insane. It's like a shelf. Well, he's um he does play a lot more camp uh in in his mannerisms and everything, whereas the other one is like deep voiced kind of you know pudgy and so obviously whilst they're both being coded as queer they're not both camp in like they're not portrayed as behaving exactly the same they make for an interesting couple i guess it's like two different representations of it i suppose i don't know i don't know and that's not me complimenting that's just me observing no i think that is a a relative i mean if it's gonna get a compliment for something then it can have it for that i quite like the forceful way that they keep referring to each other as mr kid and mr wint acknowledging that they will never be able to take each other's surnames that's quite cute i think they're quite good villains as well although i think they've been done dirty like they're clearly like very good at what they do. And yet in the film, they keep making stupid mistakes. Like at the end, when they serve, when Mr. Kid serves the wine and um, Mr. Bond goes, oh, I'd prefer a claret. And he went, oh, we're all out of claret. It is a claret. I was like, no self-respecting gay man would get that wrong. <laughs> like if there's anything, if there's anything that man knows, like look at him, like he's spraying his perfume. He's never without it. Like he's immaculately dressed. That chin, that chin could have opened the wine bottle. There is no way he didn't know the difference between a claret. Otherwise he would have bullshitted better. Like, nah. It is the perfume that he also rumbles them for. Like, cause he never sees them. They knock him out like on several different occasions, but he never sees them. And he says it's the smell that gives them away with, with the perfumes. So that was something that was laid in throughout. But I just think the, um, the, the, the other, guy is such a fascinating look if i was to describe what his look was it's like if you took an animated dog from a from a a, a, like a disney film and or something like that and in the film it got turned into a human he very much does have a spaniel look doesn't he yeah 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 he looks like the forgotten bg brother i i noted that they're both they're they're both look like um maths teachers that had won a competition to be in a bond film (laughs) 
Did you know that the one, uh, not the not the one we were just talking about, the the cock spaniel, the other guy, is the father of Crispin Glover? Yeah, Bruce Glover. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Another man with a very striking look. Yeah, I don't know who that is, but the fact that he's a father tells me he was not a gay man. So <laughs> queer coded, but not. You know, when can we play our own stories? Interestingly enough, according to an interview, Bruce Glover once said that uh, while they were recording scenes together, he and these his co-star Potter Smith uh, convinced Sean Connery that they were openly gay. And it was only a few years later on a flight where he was flirting with a uh, a flight attendant that Sean Connery, who was within earshot, noticed and then realised he'd been playing them all along. So is that question... Is that the stupidity of Sean Connery or the amazing acting of Bruce Glover and Potter Smith? Oh. I'm going to give them acting credit. I actually did like them as characters. Like, I I did like them as characters, and I don't mind um, them being queer. I'm just not going to be super grateful for it. I'm not going to be grateful for these tiny morsels that you throw me. But I, I did like them as characters, and I would quite like to see a spin-off. You know, like, you know, like, have you ever seen that Lion King spin-off with Timon and Pumbaa, which is what they were doing in all the scenes in between? Like, I'd quite want to see that for this movie. Their hijinks in Vegas. You know, they were loving it in that underground casino bit where there was the drag show, you know, with the acorns, um, which is one of the only times two women were on screen together is when two of them are being bloody burlesque dancers. Well, another time is with Bambi and Thumper. Now, like, that was the one where I thought... Yeah, that was the one that I thought was the... I was the least sure if that was being queer-coded because they were sort of playing... I mean, flirtatious with Bond and then just kicking the shit out of him. And By the way, it's that look with the bright pink tie... I think that's as bad as Bond. That just that whole ensemble. I just did not think that was a good. I just it seemed like Sean Connery was particularly just looked bad in that whole get up. It just didn't suit him. I thought. I, I don't think, know why. I think he looked worse when he fell into the pool, and I was worried about his hair running. Yeah, yeah, that too. Okay, so I did not notice anything about his look because I was so excited that this scene might actually pass the Bechdel test. Do you know the Bechdel test? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so it's uh, Alison Betchel she's a cartoonist and all you have to have is two named females which they are Bambi and Thumper shit names but they are named um, in a scene together they have three lines of dialogue not about a man but the only lines of dialogue they have are where they direct each other to fight Bond which is the laziest stupidest way to fight someone like flagging it yeah it, what also, it's so awkward that whole scene because it's like one of the few scenes that doesn't have any music in it either and it's just really long awkward pauses where they're like I, it's the weirdest edited scene in the whole film to me none of it seems to make any sense yeah the dubbing i don't know whether it was the way i was watching it but the dubbing was bad yeah but um the thing that really infuriated me the most about this scene because i quite like the idea of them as characters but because I lost my mind halfway through the film when they said, when Bond says to Tiffany Case, have you ever been to the circus? And I thought, oh God, here we go. <laughs> Is that where he shows him the big top? <laughs> yeah, as a circus artist, I was like, oh, I'm just about to lose my mind. And I do want to talk about that scene. But this this Bambi and Thumper, clearly they should have been in the circus scene. Like they are doing circus gymnastics. At one point, Bambi is doing the trapeze stuff by flying off of the um, light shade. Why were they not in that scene? Like why, they were clearly booked for that scene and they shot on the wrong day. <laughs> but yeah, they would have been nice to set them up with, uh, as being part of the, the circus setup. Yeah, that makes sense. As bodyguards, they were awful. Like, they they were there to protect and keep Willie White safe or 
stuck where he was, right? Because I did not get the impression he was imprisoned. But they were meant to stop him. And then when James Bond walks in, they just let him. One of them is lounging on this rock in the middle of a room. Like, who decorated this house is what I want to know. Blovel definitely didn't because he is a gay homo. So he did not. No one would design a house like that. She's just lying on this rock. They don't do anything. And then when they do fight him, they spent most of the time cartwheeling around the room like they're Power Rangers, expelling all their energy. It's not an efficient fighting technique. Yeah, it's poor fighting strategy all around because they have it. They, they own him on in hand-to-hand combat, but then they seem to send him into the water and it seems like their weakness is they can't swim. That was ridiculous. There is no way he held both of them under that water. Like, I just, I cannot, I, that I lost my mind. And also credit to the props and hair and makeup department, because if they were dealing with a Sean Connery wig in that scene, they flawless, flawless. Ooh, 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 I've got a little fact here. Um... As you remember, the character Peter Franks was the the diamond smuggler that Bond's Bond's identity uh, assumed uh, on his way over to Holland. The actor that played him, Joe Robinson, actually taught Sean Connery judo for You Only Live Twice and accidentally pulled off Connery's hairpiece during the elevator fight. Imagine, you've got uh, Sean Connery in this film earned $1.25 million, which is about eight five, eight and a half million in this in this sort of economy. The most any actor was paid for a film at any other point, and you've pulled off the man's goddamn hair. <laughs> you've got to imagine, oh, that's my career over there. You go, thank you very much. It's been lovely so long. I mean, if you're going to get that close to Sean Connery, pull off the damn wig. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's what you do. Like, yeah, you have to take these chances. Like, if I was ever in a scene with Katie Hopkins, I'm sorry, my elbow would slip. <laughs> I mean, you've just got to take the chance when it's there, don't you? Yeah, it was. Um, it was actually in that lift scene that I want to come to a thing that we've sort of alluded to a few times. James Bond is very incompetent at his job at many points throughout this film. What do you mean when he goes to punch him and he elbows the window behind him? He elbows the window and telegraphs his move entirely. It's like that's just surely fighting assassination one hundred and one. Don't bring attention to yourself, James. And so that, I really liked that scene. I thought it was fun. It was a really good fight scene. Uh, it's obviously echoing probably the best, easily the best Bond fight scene of, of Sean Connery's run at least which is the in From Russia With Love where he fights Robert Shaw who's like the Spectre henchman and they're just in a, a very tightly confined train carriage and they're both you know trying to really are trying to kill each other throughout the whole yeah yeah and he sort of strangles him with his own wire so it's obviously that's like the big inspiration point for that and it is does work within a confined space it makes for a more exciting and intense atmosphere but it is just that whole it's so many times like obviously he gets knocked out twice by the two henchmen uh winton kid it seems like in every film because like i said i've been re-watching them all you need to do with bond is just have him follow a woman and he will get trapped and it's like every single time he'll find a way out of it but he'll always keep getting himself into these things and I think he's got like a I'd like to imagine that there's scenes where he's got a real crisis of confidence like he's really suffering from imposter syndrome we just don't see it like in his really drunk period like on a drinking night out with Q he's like Q I'm a fucking mesh I don't know what I'm doing half the time it's a miracle I'm still alive well this is what I don't understand and that scene sort of triggered it for me like is he meant to be a really good spy or just goddamn lucky. Because when they were in that early scene when they were explaining to him about the diamonds, um, and it's not Q, it's the other guy, is that M? 
yeah, um, yeah. was saying, we do work when you're not here, Lieutenant, or whatever it was. <laughs> but they, he said to him something along the lines, I wrote it down. Oh, he says, literally, the least we can expect is some work. And I was thinking, <laughs> the guy literally strangled three people and just drowned two in wax. Like, he wax murdered two people. He's killing it. Like, literally killing it. And they're like, we can expect some work from you. It's like, what? To be fair, that was him on his break. That was him trying to get... Like, that wasn't official business. That was him getting revenge for the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And this is him coming back to work. And I see all that as, like, coded messages towards Sean Connery because the producers hated him so right. much. Like, at the start of the film, he's rolling his... At the start of that scene, he's rolling his eyes and yawning and, and like, trying to trip up M and embarrass him in front of everyone. I think that was the producers who were fed up of Sean Connery running his mouth all the time. And, like, when... when he came back he would not even refer to George Lazenby by name he'd just say well shouldn't the other fellow shut the bed and left I gotta come here and clean it up basically okay well have some goddamn respect for your audience who are paying a lot of money and decide is James Bond a very competent spy like he's the best or is he just you know the worst and just tripping through because I couldn't make sense and I wondered whether a part of it was like oh, it's to make that average white man feel better. Like, oh, I can be just like Bond. Like when his boss is telling him off because he's having a pasty instead of working security at Tesco, he'd be like, I'm just like Bond. They're always telling him to get back to work and that's me. That is a deep cut, man. That is very hard. <laughs> I, just, I just don't know what he's meant to be. I think I think in all honesty, it's just, it's, it's a requirement for there to be a film is for Bond to be keep to keep being put into positions where he's in trouble. And because he's a one-man band who don't need anyone by his side, then he has to put himself into those situations to escape them, really. So they want him to be brilliant, but unfortunately that means he does also have to look bad at the same time, as weird as it sounds, you know? I think things can still go wrong, like... He could have, the glass could have just broke. He didn't need to do it with his goddamn elbow. It could have just broke. Do you know what I mean? It could have hit something else. Like the lift could have just stopped and got the guy's attention. Tiffany Case could have dropped one of her diamonds and got the attention that way. So I couldn't understand whether Bond was meant to be competent or not. Um, and that really got me. Because his only real skill appears to be that he can improvise a bit and impersonate people. Yeah, and that he can kill very, very well. But like any goddamn person can do that. You throw a banana in London and you know, hit someone that's done 101 <laughs> improv at the nursery. Like anyone can get through that. I just, I didn't understand what his, what his major skill is right now. I think it needs to be said though. I think we're, we're missing the vital point here. Aren't Dutch elevators beautiful? My biggest worry about Amsterdam in this film is how many people know that Rembrandt is from Amsterdam because of this film and the one line when they're on the boat when they say our most famous painter. See, obviously, especially in the 60s and 70s and 80s, people weren't, you know, flights weren't as relatively cheap as they are now. Obviously, they're not cheap, but, you know, it is easier. So a lot of this was, like, people who had to go to Butlins for their holiday getting a, you know, getting to see the sights via the Bond films and that's also interesting with this film again why I think it kind of feels like a downward step is that in all the previous films it's been Istanbul Kingston Jamaica and all these exotic and exciting and, and, and often places with great history Venice yeah. and, and all that and with this one they go to Las Vegas and like you know I want to spend a week in Las Vegas. I love poker. I would love to spend a, a time in Las Vegas with a bit... If I ever somehow fall into a bit of money that I can just blow, the first place I would go would be Vegas. But it is not a place with classy, beautiful architecture where you can have a sexy Euro- like European thriller, which was what all the 60s Bond films were. It is neon lights, gaudy, you know. It, yeah, the, the problem is there is a reason why it was set there. 
That's because uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service performed so poorly in the US, they tried to Americanize this film as right. much as possible in order to appeal to a more American audience. That's why they tried to get in Burt Reynolds or Adam West, and they failed, and they had to bring back Sean Connery to remind the American viewers, hey, look, this guy was James Bond first. Isn't he wonderful? It's in Las Vegas. There's a moon buggy. This one speaks like us. Why? And that's the whole reason that it was... Otherwise, it would have been set in some sort of faraway land that we've never even heard of. Well, maybe they would have put it in Africa, like you say, you know, in South yeah. Africa or somewhere like that. I mean, I'm kind of glad that they didn't because after what they did with um, Live and Let Die, like, let's let's be super glad that they weren't... They were racist to Americans. <laughs> the problem with 70s South Africa is you also have the apartheid nightmare situation. So, you know, tread carefully. <laughs> Well, can we talk about Tiffany Case as a character? Because what is she meant to be? What's going on there? A foil. She's meant to be the... But that's why it's so... Like, she is genuinely... Uh, I know you, you were defending her and everything, but she's presented as incompetent in a way that none of the other Bond girls were presented as. They were like... They weren't actively causing Bond problems. And I felt throughout this whole film that, like, especially Plenty, Bond really... It's like he's barely tolerating being around her. <laughs> like Usually Bond is enjoying the company of these women. He actively doesn't enjoy the company of Plenty. And with Tiffany, it is kind of a... There's moments where they're properly bickering, which could have been cool, this idea that Tiffany does kind of see through Bond's shit, but then at other times she's completely smitten with him. Like she's calling him darling in one scene before then, asking if she can call him James, which is a really weird order of doing it. She's just... Her character is an absolute mess. I don't think at any point they wrote like a character description for her. I think they just called Jill St. John and they were like, hi, do you mind wearing a wig? Because she starts at the beginning. She seems like a bit of a badass in that first scene. Like I have a note that says, wow, we have a badass Bond girl. I was like, cool, I could get excited about this. Because she was wearing wigs and she was tricking, like she knew what she was doing. She was in control. Like when he comes in and she takes the glass and it's got the fingerprint. And I was like... Clever. I mean, stupid to use a fingerprint mark that smells, but you know, well done, you're trying something. And she seemed really in control. And then the minute that the fight scene started in the lift and she cowered in the corner like a little baby. And I thought you must be a goddamn drug smuggler. You should be able to handle yourself. From there, she just became a mess. Like she she never had any autonomy or um, like she never, was in control of anything in the movie. Like when they go to the circus, which why the hell did they call it a circus? It was a casino. Like they didn't need to go to the circus. The circus made no relevance. They had trapeze artists dancing in the air, which is disrespectful when people are gambling below. You either watch those goddamn trapeze artists who are risking their life or don't bother, but they do want the trousers. (laughs) (laughs) Can we take, can we take a little detour quickly ask and ask you, where did the interest in circus performing come from for you, uh, Aaron? Because when I first saw it, I thought would, you know, like a lot of comedians was this like thought of this could be a good hour in Edinburgh or was it genuinely <laughs> like a, a lifelong love of, of the circus and wanting to have that as a, like another string to your bow as a performer? I can honestly tell you doing a stand-up circus hour in Edinburgh was the toughest thing I've ever done in my life and it was not a good or strong idea. Yeah, Edinburgh's physically taxing for someone who's just sitting down for an hour. I got really ill in the middle of a run and you're, you're performing every day and I there was literally one time where I wasn't sure whether I was going to shit myself in the middle of a show like with silks right around me. Like I once <laughs> farted in the middle of like a cocoon of silks and I was scared the audience had heard. It was a rough ride. But yeah, where did the for circus come from then was it was it a childhood thing 
yeah, I was really loved the idea of doing gymnastics when I was younger because I was really into the pink Power Ranger. Um, but nothing ever happened with that. And then it came much later. Like I was in, I was really fit. I was a runner when I was a kid. So I was like um, a long distance, middle distance athlete. I ran for like my county and stuff. Um, and then in my mid twenties, I was working as an actor for a physical theater company and they had just fired um, someone and they needed someone to learn uh, silks and trapeze quickly. So I had six weeks to, I'd never been on a silk before and I had six weeks to learn a duet routine. So yeah, that was like mid twenties. And then I worked with that company in residence for a couple of years and then yeah, like went off on my own. So it kind of was an accident, but you know, it's one of those where you look back and you're like, oh, that's what I was meant to do. Like probably how you feel about like comedy and stuff. It's, you never know until you go on stage, you're like, oh, this is what I wanted to do. All those things that I was doing before led up to that. Is it something you'd like to return to or would it require a commitment that you may not be able to adhere to anymore or? I've never, I've not left it actually. It's a, it's a, it's a weird one. Like being, being a hyphenate, like a oh, comedian slash. Uh... It's a hell of a hyphenate. It's not one that many, you know. There's plenty of comedians slash podcasters out there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you're a white male, I thought you had to start a podcast. That's what I did. It. I thought it was no, the that's law. That's what we did. The collective noun of mediocre white men is a podcast. <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah, so I still perform. Like I did a, a Christmas contract um, in 2019 um, at the Rico Arena in Coventry and uh, still teach and perform. But it's, yeah, I mean, I'm coming towards my mid thirties, there will come a time when circus will become a lot tougher. Um, and I was worried like, cause we've just been in lockdown. Do you know what I mean? There was, what was it? Three or four months where you couldn't get into a studio to train or perform. And I was like, oh, that might be it. But um, yeah, no, still training. I don't do the flying trapeze, which is what you saw in Diamonds Are Forever. So that's when they're swinging uh, from one side to another. I use like a static trapeze and we do tricks and drops and stuff from that. But my main is the silks, so like the curtains that hang down. Have you ever done clowning or could that be something you would get into or is it of no interest you to whatsoever? Well, the clown- well depending on where you look in circus, um, like modern clowns are acrobats. Like I saw this amazing piece. I can't remember. It was one of the Russian companies. And the clowns are sometimes the strongest performers because they have to do all that physicality of falling and tripping. And, you know, maybe they'll be on a unicycle and falling. Like they're sometimes the most physically skilled ones. Yeah, I've just been too busy to really look at clowning, but... I really like the idea, but have you ever done a clowning course, either of you? No, I I, I would love to. Uh, it, it kind of now is becoming a bit of a cliche to do it now, isn't it? Especially the with like, the Edinburgh yeah. shows. Uh, but I do love, like, I loved uh, what I saw of, um, oh god, a name suddenly escaped me now. Elf Lions. Yes, that's it, yes. I don't know how I just got that, but clowning and you said <laughs> female, and I was like, oh, who do I know, yeah. And also Spencer Jones, I think is Spencer, incredible. I know, and I think, yeah, he's really great as a modern player. Yeah, he's just so clever. I saw his hour, I can't remember which one it was, the one with the polystyrene head. And I've never cared, been so invested in the character of a polystyrene <laughs> head. Like, it just gave so much character to this polystyrene head. I think I cried wow. for this polystyrene head. There was there was one where he looked, literally all he was doing to distinguish characters was taking a baseball cap and putting it sideways or forwards or backwards. Yeah. And there was so much... To, at that moment, I thought I could be seeing this generation's Tommy Cooper. 
Like, uh, he, he, he still might. I think he could become as big a, a comedy star as Tommy Cooper or Rowan Atkinson or any of those, like, universally beloved comedians, you know? And that's through, you know, the form of comedy that often is sniffed upon as, like, the least cool type of comedy out there. And also, obviously, because of things like It, <laughs> definitely has a very negative image, especially related to, like, the, the painted make. Yeah. In America, there's been, like, this spate of clown murderers yeah. or, like, this fear of it. Um, yeah. yes yeah, not great but the yeah. art form itself when you can divorce it from like the the stereotypical pennywise cost look is obviously as popular now as it ever has been on the on the live comedy circuit to the point that it did become a bit of a cliche i guess especially for like the the middle class comedians coming up to edinburgh <laughs> would be that they've done a clowning session in france or, or you know but it is something I, I i do need to sort of expand my own like that's one of the things i really admire about you aaron is that you're always trying to add new strings to your bow at all the time it's something that i need to hopefully do more myself in the future Jack of all trades, master of all <laughs> trades. Yeah. <laughs> well, while we're in the circus on this scene, is this where plenty of... Oh, so this is where Tiffany Case annoyed me, actually. Because she'd already... She, the character annoyed me anyway, because one of the first things she says to us is, I never mix business with pleasure. She then proceeds to sleep with everyone that comes into <laughs> her path. Like, <laughs> Maybe she didn't enjoy it. There was no pleasure. But she sleeps with James Bond and she's like straight away, well, she's Mr. Franks at that point, isn't he? And she's straight away like, oh, you know, we could be a great partnership. So it's like, oh, I never mix business with pleasure except every day. And then she immediately jumps ship to Blofeld, even if it's under a secret disguise or whatever, which annoyed me because she wasn't even doing anything. She was just lounging around on an oil rig in a bikini, which is just dumb. And I hated that they gave her a magazine. Like, why can't she be reading a book on quantum physics? Like, why can't we have a woman in STEM? That's the surprising thing. Jill St. John, the actress, is actually very in touch. She's got an IQ of 162. I think she's also a member of Mensa, so why they couldn't try and incorporate Because that she wasn't way? allowed to read or write the script until she got there. Like, I do not believe she read the script. I do not believe there was one for that character. Well, it's one of those things with an actor. you just got to try and, you know, everyone sort of takes what they can get when you're an actor, I suppose, and, and hope that you can bring something to it if they give you the chance. But... Oh my God, it's a huge movie. You would never turn it down. It's just, they could have done so much more with this character. Like, there was also that moment when she, he and Bond says, oh, I have a friend named Felix who can fix anything. And she, the first thing she says is, is he married? So this is a woman who never mixes business with pleasure and that she's obsessed with marrying her co-stars. It just doesn't make any sense. In the book, she's actually, because I was reading up a little summary of the book, in the book, she's meant to be really distrusting of all men. It turns out because she was, like, gang-assaulted in her youth, and it's like, obviously, that I mean, that would be a hell of a challenge for an actor to to bring in. That's something that they had uh, the woman in Skyfall, whose name I can't remember now. Uh, So it's something they've explored later on, and obviously they also had a scientist Bond girl in The World Is Not Enough. They cast Denise Richards in it, and everyone thought that was hilarious unfairly or unfairly you know I, what i think is interesting like you're saying is that she's sort of always trying to run away almost and either that idea of it'd be interesting like a, what what does a coward do in this world but more interestingly is just someone that is utterly utterly unimpressed with bond and emotionally detached from him and is willing to drop him like she abandons him i think three different times in this film you know, she right? runs away from Q, she runs away from Bond. And that could have been interesting, this idea that she's ruthless and she'll just go wherever it is that saves her. But it's really just because she's scared and incompetent. I don't think it is. I think it's because no one has sat down and thought, what does Tiffany Case want? Or what is her motivation? Like, I don't know how the actress got through the scenes because there's no consistency in her motivation. Like, it would be really interesting if she was dis- 
mistrustful of men and then Bond managed to seduce her. Like that I think is an interesting arc and I think that fits the character, but that's not what we got. Like I think she's totally wasted as a character. Like, you know, like when she's in the circus, they send her to that circus and all she does is wander around. Like she's just guided by male characters who we don't even know. Like it feels like no one in this char- in this whole story had a backstory. Like wh- what, how did, cause she's also, she's a diamond smuggler. Like she's mid to high level in this rank. How did she get there if she's so bloody incompetent that- she can't do anything. She can't be that incompetent. So why have we painted her like that? It's like they don't even allow her to be able to squirt a, a water into a clown's face to, open, oh, to burst a balloon. She exactly. can't even bother to do that. And she just gets it handed to her and a little nerdy boy complains about it. Adjudicator! Right? Adjudicator! Shenanigans! That boy actually was the only person in this whole movie that gave a speech that made sense. Like, he finally pointed out an inconsistency in this world. He's like, why should she get everything and, like, nothing? That was a sign in 1971 about capitalism not being effective. And it's the rich and the wealthy and the middle classes that just walk in here with their teddy bears full of diamonds and take everything. I mean, never a truer word spoken on this podcast. I was fucking raging, and I hope that that kid grew up to be better. Do you know what I mean? Because this poor carriage has been completely done dirty. Well, I mean, I think Plenty O'Toole might be the worst written Bond girl ever. Like, she's literally presented as an idiot. Poor Plenty O'Toole just wandering around a casino looking for a plotline. I just felt so bad for her. Like, what is she? What, what does she do? I think she's meant to be like a cooler, maybe? Someone that brings bad... Like, the casinos literally employ people to sort of feed off bad... Like, to, in, to like affect gamblers who are maybe on a winning streak, distract them or something. And then hopefully that means they lose to the house. I don't know if that's what she's meant to be. Or if she's just meant to be looking around, trying to find whoever she can spend the night in the hotel room with. It infuriates me because I feel like... As a character, she died as a punishment because she talked too much. I feel like they do this a lot to female characters in movies. Like, if you've ever seen Love Actually, <laughs> every female character with too much personality has a terrible life. Plenty really annoyed me because I didn't really know why she was there. And I didn't know why her role couldn't have been filled by Jill St. John and just flesh that out more. Well, they, they usually give her a secondary Bond girl so that just Bond has a couple of extra notches on his bedpost per right. film, you know? Sure. That's essentially what it is. But then I didn't understand why she went to sleep with him because she was obviously there hustling for money because the first thing we see her is she's talking to that one guy and she's like, you're a nice guy, but, you know, I think you should go get some rest. And then she hears this guy laying down dollar and she's like hello paycheck and then he gives she rolls the dice she assumes he doesn't know how to play whatever it is that they're playing roulette i think um which is dumb of her like she's been in this casino long enough she should be smarter but he gives her a five thousand dollar chip and she's like well maybe we should go for a drink or something and she goes up to his room like why she got the five thousand dollars she got paid she didn't you don't take the money first and then insist you sleep with them like that is rule 101 of the street if you can get the money without (laughs) doing anything go hustle someone else girl you got a whole evening you make another five thousand oh before we crack on i do have uh kind of an interesting fact oh you just throw in here actually a couple um we mentioned the scene where plenty drowns in the pool She's sitting to be tied to like a cement block in the in this pool and drowns and dies. The actress Lana Wood, you may be more familiar with her sister Natalie, who famously down, uh, died whilst drowning. Yeah, also Lana almost died in the making of this film because the block that she was on kept shifting further and further into the deep end of the pool. 
it, it took a crew member to realise that she couldn't get her head above water at one point, so they had to pull her back in. Also interesting, the only person to see Natalie alive before she drowned, Robert Wagner, ended up marrying Jill St. John. So Jill St. John and uh, Lana Wood technically became sisters-in-law by proxy, but they were both sleeping with Sean Connery on the set of this film. So there was oh, wow. bad blood from the beginning, and it has been... He was a real method actor. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It's been 50 <laughs> years since they still hate each other's guts and it's one of the most longest running like public rivalries in Hollywood and it all sparked from this film where Sean Connery thought, oh, I'll just bed anything. What's that, uh, Ryan Murphy series? Yeah, feud. I was just about to say, yeah, look forward to the docuseries on that. But I'm kind of glad because I was miffed when Tiffany Case um, is in the bedroom. So he brings back Plenty O'Toole and then those guys weirdly throw her out the window into the pool which she doesn't then drown in so she gets thrown into a pool and survives and the next time we see her she's drowned in a pool Ugh, poor well they also make the joke that we didn't know there was a pool there so the joke is haha we were gonna throw her to her death <laughs> and then when she's not gonna get to speak before she dies anyway because she's a female character we don't need her and then he walks into the bedroom and tiffany case is in there and even though she references the fact that he brought this piece home he's still she's still happy to sleep with him like she's literally not phased at all and this is a woman who never mixes business with pleasure like why and don't you think it was interesting we didn't see a sex scene and i don't think you see them kiss I can't remember, but... There's one moment when he's on top of her. I know there's one moment on top of her right. when he makes a pun of, like, I'm on top of the case or Ugh. something like that. Yeah. But, yeah, it's well, it's weird, like... It's funny enough, with the Bond films, you pretty much only see a kiss and then they... Because I guess they've got to keep the PG rating for the most part. So it's, it's weirdly, like, sexy but sexless at the same time, you know? Uh, I know. That, I remember when they said when they were making Die Another Day, which is a future episode, that they wanted Pierce Brosnan and Halle Berry to have a proper love scene, and they said it was the first love scene in a Bond film. So I have no memory of that. So I'll be curious to see what that is. But yeah, you're right. It is weirdly sexist, sexy without a lot of sex. <laughs> all the, all the versions of the sex. Um, I don't have any real more notes specifically. Does anyone have any other things I want to address before we? Yeah. I want to say something before we leave the circus. Oh, the, I have notes. <laughs> um, I can't believe no one else has mentioned this yet. That there is one of the very few black people represented in this film is a black woman kept in yes. a cage that turns into a gorilla. That was oh, awful. Oh, God, yeah, I forgot about that. That was crazy. I literally was like, how is this? Like, she didn't even get any dialogue. I do remember there were some black children in the audience as well, and I wonder if they were like, what the hell is going well, there on? there was a line that Plenty O'Toole said that I was like, that's weird, is that meant to be something? So she says, you handled those dice like a monkey handles coconuts. And I was like, um, <laughs> is that a racial thing? Like, are you calling monkeys? But then I read up on Peter's website, apparently they used to chain, and they still do, they chain monkeys to trees and get them to climb up and get the coconuts. So there's a fun little thing next time you're having your refreshing Marks and Spencer's coconut water. <laughs> it was probably got by a Gotta monkey. Gotta love a bit of that animal cruelty. Wow. I, d- I do have one other point I'd really like to make. Um, one thing we've completely skirted over. One thing that really shocks me. In the uh, the port scene before he goes over to Holland on a hoverboat. On a bloody hovercraft. Let's not ignore that. The fact that Moneypenny is a thirsty bitch. Oh my god. I was I so wanted to pull Moneypenny aside and be like, babe... 
when are you going to learn? He does not love you. You need to train this man. Because James Bond is the ultimate fuckboy. Like, he keeps calling everyone... He keeps calling everyone darling because he can't be bothered to learn their goddamn name. And she's like, please, James, a ring. And it's like, money, Penny, you don't want that. You Do you not want better for your life? Like, if he's not calling you and he's not asking you out, he's just not that into you. And you're a hot piece of ass. You work for, you know, Her Majesty's Street Cook Service. You must be a decent typist. You can probably do 110 words a minute. You can do better want more for yourself i have a few things that i'm unhappy about still i feel bad for herb glockenscheiser who had worked at that factory for three years and people still didn't know who he was and he's handing out small badges that protect you from radiation like he's a big he was deal really nice he was really G-unit, nice radiation is a big deal yeah it kind of reminds me of all those austin powers gags about all the henchmen and them having like really you know, strong and stable home family lives. Right? And Austin Powers just killing them ultimately. That is also a funny thing, watching these through the prism of growing up also on the Austin Powers films yeah. and seeing what's being referenced where. She really you know? got Ill- killed by ill-tempered mutated sea bass. Because I did think it was weird when um, Blofeld is leaving and something is happening plot-wise with, I think the oil rig is going to explode. Like, the scientists are still working. Like, it's always <laughs> like they're like, well, we don't get to clock off till five. So, unfortunately, if it explodes, we just have to deal with that. Another glaring view into the world of uh, the class warfare in the 1970s. <laughs> yeah. I love the idea of one of them just having gone off for a five-minute cigarette break and coming back to all chaos. It's like, wow, I leave you for five minutes, and this is what I come also, back the, to. Also, the one guy with the announced the, the PA, system, uh, PA system is going... One minute and counting. I want to hear him do everything. Train announcements, the lottery numbers. Let's have that guy in everything. (laughs) But also, why are you announcing how much time you have left to live with such (laughs) cool calm? Maybe he was on a remote station away from... Oh, no, no. He was very much part of the action. (laughs) Can someone also explain to me the moon buggy scene? Like, why were they faking the moon landings? Because I understand that they were sending the diamond and the satellite up to the moon. But those guys were pretending to walk in zero gravity. Yeah, that was weird. Like, catch, you can get him. You can get Bond. Why are you walking so slowly? (laughs) (laughs) You're just in the suits. The suits do not create zero gravity. And if they do, that was not explained to me as an audience member. Those were methods actors are and they take their craft very seriously it just felt like the screenwriters had gone moon that's popular now we need to get the moon on there well it's so funny as well obviously the conspiracy theories were already there only a couple of years after the moon landing like the conspiracy theories were popular enough in in common knowledge that they could joke about it you know it would have been even brilliant if they'd had a director there who looked like stanley 1969 was the moon landing so i'm not sure how quickly we're all like oh well they weren't real I think it had its. I think it had its doubters from the word go. I mean, you look at what happened with the World Trade Center. It did not take more than three days for people to go. Ah, oh, they shouldn't have crashed like that. It's different. Uh. That was always a funny thing they always say about conspiracy theories. They're never around for the ones that actually didn't work. You know, when that guy shot Ronald Reagan and Reagan didn't die. Oh, it was just some nutter. No one's ever right. said like, ah, yeah, Spectre have been foiled this time, but they'll be back again the next time. You know, it's it's just you know whatever. That'd be that'd be interesting actually. Bond bond encountering conspiracy theorists who, who write all these websites about him <laughs> who is this guy who uses the same name everywhere he goes it didn't take us long to figure he this has out six different faces 
and has lived for over 70 years. Uh, that is interesting, though. You were saying about the, the disguises, like Tiffany Case having those blonde um, brunette wigs, and she only uses in that one episode, well, that one scene, because that is kind of the theme throughout it all, is like people disguising themselves as other people through voices and costumes and literally dressing up Oh my god, that annoyed me so much. Like, why did they need a machine? Like, why could none of these actors diversify? Like, it was insane. Like, again, throw a banana and you will hit an improviser that has four different accents (laughs) for the accent game. Like, they could have done the movie. I'm pretty sure everyone can do at least a Sean Connery that people can tell you're doing Sean Connery. You have a Sean Connery, you have an Arnold Schwarzenegger, you have a Robert De Niro. It doesn't matter who you are. You've got those three locked up. <laughs> and the guy they all needed to impersonate was a Texan. Like, that's one of the easiest ones. <laughs> Let's have a Connery off then. I think I gave mine earlier. Uh... Sean Connery. <laughs> Sean Connery. Is that right? Listen here, you little toddler. Look, I'm a character actor. He doesn't have the range. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to give a shout out to Sean Connery and to this one. I know I said at the beginning, like, oh my God, he's a terrible Bond. But... I do want to give his grip strength and core stability claps. So that scene when they go up in the lift, like as an aerialist, my palms were sweating. Like I get this sweaty palms thing if something is too high and there's too much of a drop, which is not good as a circus performer. Yeah, the bit the bit where he's up on the on the penthouse swinging in that was very yeah. well done. That obviously, was cool. The Mission Impossible's have obviously topped it now, but for 1971, it, it looked impressive. Well, I kind of liked it. It kind of made him seem look a badass because through most of this movie that's, that, that's one of the scenes where he's competent at being a spy yeah i also want to give a shout out to the bed that was shaped like an ashtray and had fish <laughs> yeah, that looked like the most uncomfortable fucking thing to sleep on doesn't jill st john use uh sean connery's chest to hold her ashtray at one point or am i mixing that yes. up with another bomb yeah yeah, also, yeah was, no 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 that oh. is after they yeah that was a brief moment of bond being treated like a literal object See how you like it. <laughs> Which is, like, if that would be so badass if they developed her character yeah. a little bit. Because there could have been more of, like, a banter between them, actually. Because they do argue at one point, but it's not like, yeah. But because there's no consistency to her character, it doesn't mean anything. They're just literal words. Like, there's no force to it. I, but I did like a lot of the interior design. Aside from that stupid bloody rock that Thumper was on, there was some nice, like... Uh, one point they go to club tropic they go to tropicana like hotel tropicana i was like george michael eat your heart out and it had that amazing bath where you had the phone i was like okay i could live in this movie a little bit yeah well i guess we've kind of done all the say something nice and what we could have done differently throughout the course of this thing really that brings us on to our next part which is hey you don't watch that watch this so i think at the end of this run, maybe me and Tom can discuss like how we'd rate and rank all the bomb films. So we won't recommend a bomb film instead of this. So instead, we were thinking what we'd like Aaron. If there are any any British films out there you have a love for, doesn't have to link thematically or with a cast or anything. If there's a British film that you think maybe not enough people have seen, or just a classic that you love uh, that you'd recommend other people go and see, what will be an alternative if people didn't want to watch a uh, Diamonds Are Forever that you could give them? Well, I have two films for you. So I have one where, um, like, it's a British film that's actually decent, where they've gone to extreme lengths to develop a female character. And that is Happy Go Lucky, the Mike Lee film featuring Sally Hawkins. That was like her breakout role, really, wasn't it? And she's yeah. done so much since then. So I only ever saw it in, like, bits, because it was always on, like, film four or something. You'd catch, like, five or ten minutes. And um, I finally sat down and watched it, and I really enjoyed that. 
Um, and then I have a film for you guys, actually, a best of worst film that I don't think you will have heard of. So did you know that the cast of Smack the Pony did a movie together? I, yeah, is it someone like Gladiatress or something like Gladiatress. that? Gladiatress, yeah, well done, yeah. yeah. So it features the cast, so Duma Kitchen, Sally Phillips and Fiona Allen, but because the sketch series was written um, like as a writer's camp, like it was just lots of different sketches sent in, um, it's obviously none of the writing pulls through. Um, uh. And I remember, I hadn't watched it for years. I watched it like maybe 15 years ago or something. And I remember being brutally disappointed. But it might translate well. I mean, the performances will be good, but I don't know what the script is yeah. like. I really loved Smack the Pony when that came out. It was a really, yeah, I just always be, that was always a sketch I really loved where one of them plays a, is like a, a post-match interview of a footballer and she ends up like not she stops asking all those lame you know boring questions that they were always asked and starts making him cry about how he misses his mum or something like that <laughs> yeah, yeah they always, always went, really great and subversive yeah, it was always a really cool perspective yeah i think it's you all watch... on channel four now i think it's all on all yeah. four did you ever watch yeah it, i used to quite like uh smack the bony it was i was of that age around that time where i was sort of I understood it and I knew of it. I didn't uh, embrace it so much, but I, because I, I, I was only about what nine or ten when it came out. But I, I remember enjoying bits of it, and I've gone back and seen stuff since, and I've really enjoyed quite quite a few sections of it. Yeah, the running date video obviously doesn't ring true now, but I do always remember those being good ones. I think it does. Like I think a lot of it still stands up because of what you've got with like um, online yeah, dating stuff like and Tinder, stuff. Yeah. It just kind of it's like vocally read out rather than. Yeah. So now we're on to the plugs and the social medias. We'll uh, let you take it away first, Aaron, uh, how people can get in touch with you, other projects you're doing that they can follow. Uh, hopefully the the sort of uh, being up we did earlier for Pot of the Pops will have whetted people's appetite if you want to tell them more about that. Yeah, so if you like my socio-political feminist views, you can join me and uh, my two girlfriends as we talk about British girl bands on our podcast, Pod of the Pops, uh, which is available on all platforms. And then you can get me and them. So we're at Pod of the Pops on all social medias as well. And then you can catch me at Aaron Twitchin, which is impossible to spell. I have one of those surnames. I can't be bothered to spell it out. So you can just visit my humbly titled website, iloveaaron.co.uk So is the plan going forward for it to be like a different act every year or is it still sort of up in the air what it's going to be? Was it actually just going to be a one-off for the Spice Girls and you weren't sure or was it always going to be? Yeah, we were just going to do a series about the Spice Girls. I just wanted to do like a self-contained like podcast documentary Um, and then we got really good feedback. We're like the top rated Spice Girls podcast in the world. Yes, there's more than one. (laughs) Has there ever been any sort of word that maybe one of them might have listened to an episode or... Oh God, I don't know. Like, because it's weird, isn't it? Like, I don't know how you guys would feel about anyone of the films that you've read, uh, that you've reviewed yeah. listening. It's hard enough with the fans. Like, the Spice Girls fans are so bloody intense that I sometimes feel like when we're saying stuff, like, we're just going to get hate. The other week, um, I called JK Rowling a turf on the podcast. And I was like, oh yeah. God, we're going to get hate mail but we can't get hate mail because she is yeah i mean what why get hate mail for uh for stating the obvious right <laughs> if you're gonna go out there and actively promote websites that sell badges that say your genitals are what you are and funds hate then i think you should expect to be challenged it's not like you're writing bond films you're writing films for kids 
have you covered all yours now, Aaron? Is there anything else you need to add on to the... Look, I mean, there were a lot of points in this film that I got, you know, like, angry and annoyed, and I'm sure everyone did in the same way. I think it's a fun romp. Uh, my final thought, it's a fun romp. Just develop a character, like, any character. Like, leave Bonds as an enigma, fine. But if you're going to give Q a, fu- a little bit of backstory when he's like, oh, well, I made this for my kids, like, give your lead bloody female something. Like, just anything as how she became a diamond smuggler. I'll tell you what, Aaron, in the new Bond, it looks like there's going to be a woman that takes the 007 mantle from Bond because he retires at the end of the previous film. And obviously, they are trying to do some different things. You don't have to if you don't want to, but if you're interested when it comes out, maybe if you go and see it and send us a message of what you thought about it, because we will probably do a No Time to Die episode at the end of it, and then maybe we can just include like a two-minute clip of if you want to if you want to bother going to see it or not. It's entirely up to you. But I mean, I think it would be important to get a female's perspective as well. <laughs> but I am happy to also go in. Well, we might as well say it now. Uh, for Well, we'll first say, uh, uh, you want to get in touch with me, that's Lorca Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Apple, N for November. Uh, that's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox, do you put in at gmail.com at the end of it. That's my email address. Tom, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, you can get in touch with me, uh, Tom Hodkinson, on the f- socials, at anything... At, at Tom Hopkinson on literally anything. Uh, Facebook, Bebo, Messenger, fucking TikTok, apparently. Um, you can get in touch with me on any of those. Put in an H in Tom, because why not? It's fun. <laughs> and if you want to get in touch with the show, it's Podcast at gmail.com. And Pod is how you will find us on Twitter and Facebook. That's B-O-W-O-B-P-O-D. And so we're moving on from Sean Connery, and we said that we this was really Sean Connery in a Roger Moore bomb film. Well, now we're going to see Roger Moore in a Roger Moore bomb film with our next episode, where we will be watching 1983's Octopussy, the only Bond film, interestingly, to have the Bond girl as the title character. And we thought it would also be fitting, like you say, Aaron getting a different voice. We will be speaking to Mary Flanagan, will be our guest for that episode. I think that's it from me. Is there anything else you need to add there, Tom? Yes, uh, there was a part where James Bond kicked a cat. I don't, I don't think that was even mentioned. But yes, James Bond kicks a cat. There's probably a lot you could read into yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs>